Well, I returned back to the office this week. As you see, I'm standing here now. On Monday, uh, we welcomed a new member to our family. I know many of you know that. Uh, we welcomed our second daughter, uh, Greer, uh, to the family. And, and anyone who has ever uh, brought someone new into your household, whether that was a, a new child or maybe a, an adult has come to live into the household, um, maybe even a new pet. I know one time we had a black lab named Molly uh, that we brought home, and she used to sit in her crate in our room awake all night long, just staring at us. <laughs> she didn't know her name then either, so it was really awkward to come in and quite creepy, actually, as she did that. But you know when someone new comes in the household, there's a need to come up with new routines. There's a challenge to existing schedules. And, and life is changing. And the beauty here for all of you is you get to watch it before your very eyes week by week. You can watch my evolution or my devolving into whatever pile of ooze I become. One of those challenge routines right now in my life is sleep. Sleep deprivation is real. Another is uh, related to this sermon. I had to type part of it with one hand because I was holding Greer with the other. But Psalm 5 is positioned in the Psalter as a psalm that's part of routines. If you look at its position there where it's at, Psalms 3, Psalm 4, and Psalm 5 serve traditionally as, if you look at Psalm 3 as a morning psalm, Psalm 4 serves as an evening psalm, and then when we come back to Psalm 5, it is another morning psalm. And so you see a routine there. You see a pattern of praying in the morning, and the evening, and then once again in the morning. And it's for good reason, and it's good reason for us to know that this psalm serves as a morning psalm um, for at least a couple reasons here. The first one is this, it serves as a psalm or a prayer for protection. Now, some of you here might be familiar with the Maranatha song from the mid-1970s that's based on this psalm. You might have heard the words as Linda was reading those this morning, and you started singing in your head, uh, uh, Give ear to my words, O Lord. And it's a very pleasant tune if you've ever heard it. If you go out to YouTube and type in Maranatha Psalm 5, and you listen to that, you go, wow, that's very calm and peaceful. I feel tranquil as I sing this song, and it's kind of going along. And then you read the rest of the psalm, and you say, they left out a couple verses. This psalm doesn't seem to follow that, that pleasant type thing. There's a preacher actually out of Europe named Stuart Oliot, and he actually entitled his teaching on this particular psalm, on Psalm 5, The Believer in a Hostile World. That's how he titled this. And that's more, accurately, that's more accurate to the, the psalm and what it says. So what's the fuss all about? What's the fuss all about in this psalm? Why, why would the world be considered hostile? Well, as you begin in verse 4, uh, you'll notice that uh, this notion that evil uh, is not, again, we've heard this before through the Proverbs, uh, we'll hear this again through the Psalms, and even in Jesus' teachings, and you go into the New Testament, there's an there's a understanding in the faith community that when it comes to evil, it's not to be given quarter in the faith community. In fact, this uh, psalm, and the psalmist here will speak of, when it talks about evil, will say the boastful will be a category that's used here. And that's used in verse 5. That category is a term that applies to the arrogant or the self-confident. It also can apply to the worship of other gods. In verse 5, we also have a character, the characteristic of evildoers. And this is a very common uh, term that's used throughout the Psalms. We hear of in verse 6, bloodthirsty, in which this kind of idea of the bloodthirsty is those who could either be outright murderers, or it could also relate to those who create trouble for others, particularly for the innocent, those who might have taken to the witness stand or brought charges against people that were false charges. 
And of course, joining that in verse 6, and very much related, is those who are the deceitful. This is the categories, this is the archetype that we see for what evil looks like. It doesn't express every single category of evil, but it gives us an idea, it gives us a picture of these people that the psalmist has in mind. Of course, the tricky thing in all this is we're not quite sure if the psalmist is thinking of somebody out there or they're thinking of somebody in here. The psalmist might be seeing their own heart as we see this, these evil exposure, these, these characteristics are brought out immediately following a section where the psalmist turns their attention to God. And perhaps in the presence of the holy God, the psalmist themselves sees their own fail, failings at that point. And so it creates a tricky place for them. Of course, the psalmist will go on and offer additional categories uh, for how evil finds its way in the world and what it looks like and, it, and how this is contrasted with the people of God. Notice what it says in verse 9, what these categories look like. They're not truth-tellers, right? Continuing that, that idea of, of being uh, those who might create trouble for the innocent with their lies. Their hearts are destruction. Their throats are open graves. That idea of an open grave throat, your words that you speak are putrid. They're disgusting. They smell foul. They flatter with their tongues. And then goes on in verse 10, says that their transgressions are many. That's who this bunch is. And that their rebellion ultimately is against God. The psalm, of course, is attributed to David. If you know the life of David, you know that he had enemies inside his own household. He had enemies outside the kingdom. He had enemies inside the kingdom. Throughout his entire life, he's being pursued by different folks who want his destruction for their own possible gain. And we know Jesus as well, a descendant of David. In the Gospels, that Jesus too was being pursued by folks, that he had folks that were out to get him. We know that in John 15, Jesus says that the world hated him, and that that would be extended to his followers as well, that they would also hate his followers. At one point, Jesus is actually, we, we remember the crucifixion, but you remember that early in Jesus' ministry, there's a moment where people try to throw him off a cliff. And so his life was not a safe life, that he was one that was pursued by enemies throughout that life. And for us to note that Jesus' life was also full of prayer, and we see that throughout. Perhaps these words of the psalmist brought him comfort in that time. And the psalmist prays for both protection from the work of the evildoers, as well as uh, praying that their efforts would be thwarted. And we see that here in this psalm as well. Praying against evil in all its forms and how it might find expression. It's not a prayer that's disconnected from real life. It's not a prayer that's disconnected from our real experiences in life. This is something real and tangible that we can see and we can feel. And so it's something that we can pray. But it's also not disconnected from the giver of life. And so just as we see that it holds the possibility for us for protection, the morning prayer also serves for us to remember God and to remember God's promises for us. And Dwight Moody observed that in heaven there will be no self-made men. There will be no self-made men in heaven. And we see that here in this psalm. It's very clear here uh, that it's God's work. It's what God is up to. Know what it says in verse 7. The reason that this psalmist can enter into God's house is because of God's steadfast love. 
It's because of God's covenant faithfulness is the language that's behind that. It's by God's righteousness that we see in verse 8 that the psalmist is led on a path that is far different than the path of these enemies. It's God's righteousness that serves as the model to show them how they might sojourn with their creator. And we see in verse 11 this idea of the psalmist becoming one who rejoices, who's protected, who's blessed, and who's covered. Those are all much more positive images and pictures. But they're expressions of what God does for the one who is facing destruction. The one who is facing an adversary. The one whose life looks like it is about to be ruined and destroyed. This is a far different picture. This is what God provides because of God's desire and promise to God's people. And then what might be the biggest words in the entire text? The ones that might jump out as the largest expressions of God's good gifts to the psalmist, but also to God's people. In verse 2, when the psalmist simply says this, my king, my God. I was reading this past week, uh, every once in a while I go back to Matthew Henry. Do you guys read Matthew Henry? Does anybody ever read, is there any Matthew Henry readers here? You should read Matthew Henry. You kind of kick it old school when you read Matthew Henry. You go back there, but every once in a while Matthew Henry says something that's like, oh boy, come on now Matthew Henry. You know what's up. He wrote this when he's talking about this, this verse. He says, we believe that the God we pray to is a king and a God. King of kings and God of gods. And then Matthew Henry says this, but that's not enough. That's not enough. Sure, you believe when you pray that you're praying to God, and sure, God is God, and sure, God is a king. But Matthew Henry tells us that's not enough. And the psalmist says as well, look what Henry goes on to say. He says, the most commanding, encouraging principle of prayer and the most powerful or prevailing plea in prayer is to look upon him as our king and our God to whom we lie under peculiar obligations and from whom we have peculiar expectations. Come on, Matthew Henry. My God, my king, not a distant, abstract, unrelated, hoping that this God is going to intervene for us. That's not where the psalmist is at. The psalmist recognizes that God has a relational connection to the psalmist themselves. And as we read this and as we see this, we're reminded once more of the truth of Scripture. While I was away uh, on paternity leave, I actually uh, officiated a memorial service uh, for a dear family friend. And I was reminded as I was studying for that service, once more, I usually go back to John 14 when I prepare for the service, even when those, those verses aren't used within the services. And you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in that moment when he's with them? They're afraid. They don't know what the future is going to hold. They don't, they don't know what's going on. They, they see trouble kind of brewing up. And they hear Jesus talking about leaving and, and going to another place. And Jesus says to them in John 14, 3, Where I am, there you may be also. And so this idea of my king and my God, to be in relationship with the creator of all the universe, that that God wants you to be with him. And that's extraordinary. That, friends, is good news. That God makes a way for us to be able to be those people, like the psalmist, who can look to a place where we might experience God as being present to us and with us 
and for us. When I was a kid, on Saturday mornings, there was cartoons. I always look forward to that. Being a child of the 80s, sit down watching, watching cartoons, eating some sort of cereal that would give me diabetes later. I don't have diabetes, but someday probably because that's cereal. But there would be cartoons, and during the commercials, there would be cereal commercials that would come on. And there'd be some sort of colorful character on there peddling the cereal, telling you, you know, it'd be, you know, a, a toucan or a leprechaun or a tiger. And they'd be selling to you, you know, this idea of how great this cereal. And at the end of each of these commercials, they would show you a giant bowl of the cereal right in the middle of the screen. And behind it was a massive breakfast spread of like pancakes and fruit and juice and milk. And it would always say at the end of the commercial, such and such cereal, part of a complete breakfast. But if you took the bowl away, you'd have a complete breakfast. (laughs) So they're literally telling us that there's nothing in this bowl that's going to help us. In fact, we should eat that other stuff. And I wonder when I think back to those, those commercials, I wonder if my own faith life is like that. If somehow I'm settling for a giant bowl of sugary goodness now, but I haven't established routines in the morning that are going to set me off for success throughout the day. And the psalmist here wants us, wants you and me to adopt a routine, a new kind of routine for some of us, maybe even for many of us, that invites us to a kind of prayer and a kind of life that's going to sustain us for the journey ahead. And we'll note that here's uh, what, how, the, how this psalmist will depict this for us, and it's right in the first couple of verses of the psalm. It talks about this routine uh, of prayer, a prayer that's done with words. We know that one. Right back, we know that one. Prayer with words, come on now. You pray, you speak, there's words, right? Using words. But then the psalmist goes on to use this idea that there's a prayer with murmurs. <laughs> there's sighs. There's things where we're meditation, where there's things that maybe we cannot speak, but we feel them. They're in our hearts, they're in our minds, and they're expressions that we can't give language to. Maybe they're too troubling. Maybe the experience is, is too difficult for me to put in a language that would be faithful to the way that I feel. And so we offer our words, but we also offer our inner self our inner longings, our meditations, the things that are on our hearts and minds. And maybe some of those erupt like a volcano out of us. Maybe there's things that are exploding inside of us, and they got to come out. And the psalmist would say in verse 2, we offer our cries, our very pleas that God would intervene, that God would step into this place in our life. And we offer them all at the same time. It's almost like, a three-dimensional prayer here. You ever see those infomercials where they have like the special glasses you wear at night? And it's like yellow glasses. And I remember seeing one of the people that interview on there saying, they put them on, they say, it's like, it's like everything's in 3D now. I'm like, friend, everything's already in 3D. <laughs> it's now just 3D and yellow. <laughs> well, this is turning your prayer life into 3D. It's taking that morning routine and saying, I'm going to offer these things. And not as actions that somehow will invoke God's concern, but rather it's turning my whole self to God. It's taking myself in the morning, and I'm going to turn myself to God. And every single aspect of my heart and my life is now turned 
to God. And you'll notice in verse 3, accompanied by these, this movement is now this positioning of watching and waiting. I reposition myself. So how's that a new routine? You might say, hey, you know what, Jimmy? I pray and I read my Bible every morning. This is not new. This is not a new routine for me. But for some of us, it's a routine where we have to turn the radio off. It's a routine where we have to turn the podcast off or the television has to come off. It's a place where we have to dedicate ourselves in the morning to say first thing or early in that morning hour that I'm going to turn my attention to God. That from the very start, my face is going to be turned to my Creator. And I'm going to offer all of myself. I'm going to offer my words and my inner thoughts. I'm going to offer all these things to God. Even the most troubling things I'm experiencing, I'm offering them all to God. And I'm going to listen. And I'm going to wait and watch and hear from God. When we do that, we prepare ourselves for the day ahead. Like I said at the start of the worship hour, we don't know what's coming. We don't know what the future holds. But what we do know is this is God provides protection to God's people. That God offers a promise to us of God's presence to us. And so as one I oftentimes draw on, uh, you'll hear in sermons throughout, I oftentimes draw on the words of Spurgeon. Because Spurgeon, quite frankly, was committed to prayer. His ministry and his leadership was one that was a commitment to the importance of prayer in the life of the church. And here's what Spurgeon says. He says, let us cultivate the spirit of prayer, which is even better than the habit of prayer. Let's cultivate the spirit of prayer, which is better than the habit of prayer. Why? It says this, we should begin to pray before we kneel down. And we should not cease when we rise up. When we set for ourselves that morning routine, we enter into that posture of moving ourselves before the face of God, and we're not disappointed. As we do, friends, as we move into that experience in the days and weeks, months and years ahead that God affords to us, may we too experience God's protection that we might remember God and God's promises each and every day. Amen. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning that as we draw to you, we're not disappointed because you have been running to us long before we made any movements towards you. And so, Lord, as your people now, as we come before you, as we seek to live a new routine in our lives, that we might experience your presence, your protection, that we might renew and hear anew your promises in our lives. Lord, help us to live into these places. Help us be ones who, who live into that calling to be those who hold the morning office of prayer that we might do so faithfully, knowing that we come before one who has been faithful through all ages. We pray this in Jesus' name.